Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. A few weeks ago, Michael Turner and I were poring over a copy of Augustine's Confessions. We were trying to figure out or remember, there's a famous story at the beginning that Augustine tells about this egregious sin that he commits just for the sake of sinning. He steals some fruit off of a tree, doesn't even eat it. It sort of gets cast aside. It's just a, a sin done for the pleasure of perversity. And we were trying to remember what the fruit was that was stolen, um, apples or pears or pineapples or bananas or, or what was it? And uh, finally had to, to get a copy of the book. And look, does anybody know the answer, by the way? What fruit was it that Augustine stole? Pears. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be pineapples so bad. But no, it was actually pears that he stole. Um, the interesting thing is, having to flip through the book, it kind of refreshes your memory a little bit. And there's a, a line right at the beginning, in the opening, the very first paragraph in Confessions that I find fascinating. This book, Confessions by Augustine, if you haven't read it or, or heard of it, is significant. It's the story that Augustine tells about his childhood, how he grew up and sort of was a wayward child, resisted the Christianity of his mother, and how he eventually came to faith in uh, literature. Confessions is often like looked at as the the original, like the first uh, autobiographical book in the Western literary tradition. There are critics who credit Augustine with the invention of the self, which I think is a bit much, but it's a pretty significant book. And at the beginning of the book, Augustine says something, a line, it's addressed to God, he's speaking to God, and I think it's a pretty significant sentence. It's always kind of rung in my mind since the first time I heard it. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. You've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. I think the reason that sentence fascinates me is not only the beauty of what he's saying, but the way that it packs what you might think of as like the story of the Bible into just a few words. When we try to summarize the, the narrative arc, the story of Scripture, the, the, the words we often use are creation, fall, redemption. And in Augustine's three phrases, you have those things. He says, you have made us for yourself, referring to creation, especially the createdness of human beings. God made us to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. And yet... As Augustine says, our hearts are restless, restless because of sin, because of the fall. Something has changed, and we remain restless until we find our rest in God. That's redemption. That's the work that Christ is doing. Through Christ, we are finding rest. As the author of Hebrews says, there remains a rest for the people of God to enter into. That's what Christ is doing, giving us rest in God. That's the story that we've also been following in Romans that Paul has been telling us. If you can remember back to Romans 1, we started 
with a really uh, deep dive into sin. Like God made us, God reveals himself in creation, and yet, because of sin, that creation, it, it, it's condemning us. The knowledge, the revelation of God in creation leaves us without excuse. And as we go through the depths of sin in Romans, then we make a turn towards God's plan of redemption. So that in Romans 4, which we've just finished, we've been talking about justification. How it is that we come to be justified before God through Jesus Christ. And now, having established his doctrine of justification, gone and and compared our justification to Abraham's justification to show us how all the pieces fit together in God's plan of salvation. Now Paul is basically telling us what justification means, why it matters that we're justified. What is the point of our justification? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Peace is what is ours through this great work of justification. Justification means the end of our restless estrangement. If we have peace after justification, then what do we have before justification? If peace comes afterwards, then before is that restless heart that Augustine talks about. Before we are justified, our hearts are restless. It's important, though, despite the beauty of Augustine's words, it's important not to romanticize this. Our hearts are restless, but it's not a good thing. Augustine's not talking about something like a God-shaped hole. There's an emptiness inside of us that only God can fill, that sort of thing. If we just united ourselves in love with God, then this restlessness, this sense of unease would pass. It's something worse than that. It's a restlessness that comes from estrangement, from alienation. It's that our hearts are restless because our hearts are sinful. We're restless because we're fighting. We are in conflict against the God who made us to find our rest in him. We are fighting that rest, and that's why we are restless. Restless estrangement. We're surrounded by it. You see so many examples. I've witnessed so many examples in in people that I've known and loved of this, this almost irrational restlessness, estrangement. I'll give you just one example of uh, a person I knew years ago who was hugely influential on me, someone I really looked up to. And, and in the space of time that I knew him, his life imploded. Everything went went wrong for him. His marriage was destroyed through no fault of his own. He was bankrupted. He was kind of living as a hunted person. And I went and met with him. He was in this sweltering apartment of a garage, uh, truly miserable, paranoid almost, afraid of, of what people were saying about him. And, and it was horrible to, to, to witness what had happened in his life, and my heart went out for him, and I understood why he was deeply unhappy, because everything that could go wrong had gone wrong. And that experience left a mark on me, as it does when you witness this in the the life of someone you care about. A few years later, though, without really intending, uh, our paths crossed again, and we spent some time together, and I was astonished 
at how everything had changed. Everything that had gone wrong for him had gone right. Like everything he lost, he got back only much better. He was successful in ways that I'd never imagined. He had found love again and, and had a, a family life that was enviable. Everything was great for him. But sitting up with him in the wee hours of the morning, it didn't seem like I was spending time with someone that everything had gone well for. He was bitter. He actually had, the only person I've ever known, a list of enemies. Not that he intended to kill, but, but that he intended to do everything he could to make sure they didn't advance in, in the profession. In any way he could hurt them, he would. He nurtured all of the grievances, all of the little slights that he had endured during those dark days. He remembered it all, was keeping it alive so that there could be payback at some point in the future. And I realized that although on the outside it seemed like he, he had everything he needed, like, like for, for happiness, for, for validation. Like any question mark that had been raised by his earlier misfortunes had been answered by the way that he had rebounded, and, and, and everyone was, was impressed. But, but he, he had not been changed. It was strange to me to, to see this internal restlessness, a restlessness of the heart despite the fact that he seemed to have, looking from the outside, every reason to, to give that up and to be at peace. But it taught me something. It, it's not outer circumstances, right? I thought, and, and, and honestly, I, I, it's embarrassing to admit, I think I probably said, you should be happy, pointing to all these things, like you shouldn't feel the way you do, you should feel happy instead. You ever find yourself giving advice like that? It, it never works. No one ever says, oh, you're right. <laughs> I'm going to start feeling happy. Right? You feel the way you feel. Right? The problem is, it's, it's more complicated than that. It's not about outward circumstances. Heart problems require heart solutions. His heart was restless. The problem was within. There's a moment, the beginning of the book of Job, where Satan explains human psychology to God, who made everyone. God points to the example of Job, and Satan's like, Okay, let me explain something to you. Yeah, Job loves you. Job worships you. He honors you because you do good things for him. You've given him so much, and that's how people are, Lord. They worship you when you bless them. But if you took those blessings away, he would curse you because that's how it works. His outward circumstances are good, and so he blesses you. Change those outward circumstances, and he will curse you. God turns to Satan and says, actually, it's a little more complicated than that. I'm paraphrasing. But the story of Job illustrates something. But Job's outward circumstances change horrifically, but his inward circumstance does not. He continues to glorify God despite that suffering. Because whether you are at peace or restless does not depend, as Satan thought, on outward circumstances. Whether you are restless or at peace depends on circumstances that are within. You see this same reality of estrangement echoed in other examples in Scripture. When you think about, for example, the story of Jonah, who is 
the most successful prophet of the Old Testament. Isaiah writes a much longer book, but his ministry is an abject failure. Like He preaches a message, and God tells him from the beginning, they will not hear. Jonah, four chapters, goes to Nineveh, to the Assyrians, preaches his message, and they repent. Isaiah couldn't dream of results like that. Jonah, you would expect, would celebrate. It's like, I am now the greatest of the prophets. But instead, the book of Jonah ends on a note of bitterness, of estrangement. God has used this man to do something incredible that that any minister would only dream of being used to accomplish. Jonah is not at peace with it. He insists on estrangement. He rejects what God is doing. He disagrees vehemently with the mercy that God is showing. You see, a similar instance in the uh, much-talked-about parable of the prodigal son. That's a story of reconciliation. There is an estrangement between the prodigal and his father, and the father is reconciled to the son. He doesn't hold anything against him. He, he, he brings him back in. And then you get that note of bitterness at the end because the older brother, who enjoys all the benefits and all the love of the father, insists on estrangement instead. The father, who's shown his willingness to be reconciled even to the most wayward son, that older brother insists that there must be enmity between them, that there's something broken in the relationship. And that's not coming from outward circumstances. That's coming from the heart. It's coming from inside. That's the restlessness of our hearts enthralled to sin. And there's nothing romantic about it. There's nothing beautiful about it. There are two types of restlessness. There's the restlessness that comes when we refuse peace, these examples of of, uh, being alienated, rebels against God. But there's another kind of restlessness, which is where God refuses to let there be peace as well. We've seen this kind of restlessness already in Romans. We saw the wrath of God revealed against sin. And then several times over again, we're told in reference to sinners who are persistent in their sin, God gave them up to it. God turned them over to it. It's as if by shaking the fist and saying, we're estranged, God says, I'll show you what estrangement looks like. And he hands them over to that restlessness. Now, when Paul in Romans 5.1 talks about the peace that comes to us through justification. When he says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, both kinds of peace are being addressed. There's the, the restlessness imposed by God as a penalty for sin. Because we rebel against him, God makes peace with us. When we're still rebellious, God comes to us and reconciles with us. But there's also that inner peace, an inner peace that God works in us, an end of the restlessness within us. 
What is that peace like? What does that peace really mean? The word translated peace here in the Greek is irene. It's where we get the English word irenic, and it's a word in English we almost never use because we're just not that peaceful. We don't have that many situations where we need to use it. In fact, we used to be part of a church that in its mission emphasized that they wanted to speak in irenic ways, and people would agree to this and say, yes, I, I want to be irenic, and then, and then say, well, what does that mean exactly? Nobody had a clue. And we have a similar problem when it comes to understanding peace. Because although the word that they use here is a Greek word, the concept that they're leaning on is a Hebrew concept, shalom. As some of you already know, shalom is a richer, broader concept in Hebrew than peace is for us in English. When we think about peace in English, I think it's telling. If I ask you, what is peace? What's a good definition of peace? Peace is like the absence of war. The way that, if you're a history buff, the way that we kind of think about history is is from war to war. So if you have long periods of non-war, we kind of skip over those parts to get to the next war. You know, things got interesting again when we went to war. And so peace is just the absence of war. Nothing interesting is happening. Nothing to write history about. But peace as shalom is something different than that. Uh, If you look in your order of worship, I've reproduced this quote from Cornelius Plantinga. This is from his book, uh, Breviary of Sin. Describes what shalom means in Hebrew. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. You've sometimes heard me talk about the difference between how things are and the way they ought to be we're constantly running up against that chasm. All of us, believer and unbeliever alike, all of us can think of things that are not the way they ought to be. Things that outrage us, things that seem broken about this world. There's something strange about that feeling, especially if you believe that there is no transcendent law, no lawgiver above. If you believe morality is merely socially constructed, Why would you ever be at odds with the way things are? Why would the way human beings have always been, for as long as we know, ever outrage you? Why would injustice ever seem wrong to you? Because this is how we are. This is what is natural to us. And yet, we feel that sense of brokenness in the world. Things are not as they ought to be. What Plantinga is saying is what you're feeling 
when you feel that way is the absence of shalom, the, the, the loss of wholeness, the integratedness of things that was once true as a result of creation. This is the way things were and the way they were meant to be. But because of sin, that peace was lost. Another way to think about it is the word that he uses, flourishing. Flourishing. Creation was meant to flourish. Human beings were created to flourish and to promote the flourishing of one another. That's the way it ought to be. Peace is not just the end of war. It's also like the prosperity, the the wholeness that, that flourishes when there is no conflict. So in justification, there is an objective peace, a reconciliation between God and human beings who are in Christ. But that objective declaration where God declares us just because of the work of Christ, it leads to what we might think of as a subjective peace as well, an inner peace as well. I'm not saying that the moment that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are quickened. We are suddenly at peace. We've arrived at a Zen-like state of peace, where we sit cross-legged, hovering above the ground, with no needs, no insecurities, no questions, no doubts. I'm not saying that at all. Clearly, we still struggle. Clearly, there is still a restlessness within us. What's happened, though, what's happened, though, is a fight for peace has begun within us by the power of the Spirit. And we look forward to a final peace, a final rest in the world to come. A promise that God will make things as they ought to be. And all of this comes to us, Paul says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, he says in verse 1. He repeats it again in verse 2. Through him, all of this comes through Jesus as Redeemer, and also Jesus as Mediator between God and human beings. John Calvin says the gospel is the ministry of reconciliation by the means of which we are in a manner brought into the kingdom of God, where once we fought against him, where once we were in another kingdom, another realm, serving another master, the gospel brings us into the kingdom of of God, which is why grace and peace go together. Grace and peace go together. There's no peace without grace. And if there's grace, there will be peace. When we have peace, we rejoice in hope. Paul says, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We stand in grace. Grace is where we stand, Paul says. And because we stand in grace, we have a future hope of glory. That's why Calvin says in this second quote in your order of worship, that the hope of the glory of God has shown upon us through the gospel, which testifies that we shall be participators of the divine nature. For when we shall see God face to face, we shall be 
like him. Hope of future glory. We will be like God. We are now pilgrims in this earth, but we have a hope to scale the heights of heaven. And even now, even now, although we haven't gotten there, even now, Calvin says we quietly enjoy in our own bosoms our future inheritance. In our own bosoms, we quietly enjoy the inheritance that is to come that we look forward to and hope. But, but remember, we don't have that inheritance yet. We don't possess it. And this goes back to where we began. It's not the outward circumstances that produce peace. It's the inward reality. Paul talks about a hope of glory here, glory in circumstances that do not yet exist. And that it's possible for us by faith to have peace, despite the fact that we have not yet reached that that beatific vision that Paul talks about at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. We'll see him face to face. We will be, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, uh, participators in the divine nature that has not yet happened, and yet we live in hope. So in a strange way, we kind of come full circle here because we see there's another way in which Satan, despite all the knowledge that he pretends to, doesn't really understand how things work. We saw the mistake he made in the book of Job, but there's another error that he makes in the book of Genesis when he counsels Eve. So he tempts her into sin. If you remember the motivation that he gives for eating of that forbidden fruit in the garden, the the rationale he gives for why God doesn't want human beings to eat that fruit. There's something self-serving in God's motives there. God is afraid, Satan says, because he knows that the day that you eat of it, you will be like him. So it turns out that the reason God has forbidden this tree is a kind of insecurity. That he knows that if human beings eat of the tree, they will be like God. He will lose something in comparison to us. This is actually quite false. Because when they eat of the tree, what they become is not like God. They become estranged from God. And it was God who made them to be like God. He didn't forbid it. He made them for it. He made human beings in his image. And what he promises us is that we will be like him. Now, we taste and we quietly enjoy a peace that promises to make us like God, to make us participators in his divine nature, to make us the way that we were meant to be. I mentioned Wednesday. Some of you don't know this yet, but ordinarily when summer comes around, I spend two months on the road traveling all over the country with Worldview Academy, and so I'm not here in the summer, and uh, I know a lot of people really love that time away. But uh, this, this summer, uh, I'm not going to be gone, and as a result, I'll be here 
And uh, one of the experiences I will miss about being on the road with Worldview is hearing all of the weird stories that I hear from people who bring uh, their own kids or sometimes youth groups, stuff like that, to camp. I get to talk to pastors and parents and, and hear kind of how people came to faith. And, and there's some really surprising stories that I've heard. Probably the weirdest story was a youth pastor whose testimony was that he had come to Christ while he was standing in line to the porta potties at a Pink Floyd concert while he was smoking marijuana. He was high, and he remembered something that, that he had heard in church, and it all sort of made sense to him in that moment. And as a youth pastor, it's probably you know a dilemma because you're looking to recreate the circumstances you know are effective, but uh, <laughs> not a lot of parents are willing to go down that path. But uh, I've told this story so many times, and uh, and... The thing is, it's not actually the weirdest story I've heard. Uh, the weirdest story, and it's not a story, it's like a, a genre of stories, are stories, and maybe you've heard some of these as well, people who came to faith in Christ after becoming pastors. People who are like, you know, I was in ministry for however long before I actually believed. And you're like, okay, so I think that's out of order. I don't think it's meant to be that way. It's not, certainly, but, but it does happen. And you have to ask yourself, how is that possible? Like, how would it be possible to find yourself in that position so publicly, not just professing the faith, but, but speaking on behalf of God? Like going into the pulpit and, and, and proclaiming the word of God, and you yourself are estranged from him. How, how is that possible? It's strange to think, but but it's actually not that weird if you reflect on it. The way that happens is exactly the way it happens for everybody else, which is you think that that if your outward circumstances suggest it, you are at peace with God. If you've always been in church, if things have gone good for you, if, if people have sort of been affirming of, of everything that you've wanted to do, if you just had kind of an easy path, it's easy to believe that everything is good between you and God and to just kind of continue with uh, that path, not asking questions, just because outwardly it seems like this is the right thing. And then an inward realization takes place. And you realize outward circumstances have nothing to do with it. The fact that, that life has gone well for you, the fact that you have been blessed, doesn't mean anything in terms of your standing with God. In the same way that, that if you've been a failure, if you've suffered, doesn't mean God doesn't love you and you're not at peace with God. The peace that Paul talks about is a peace that endures suffering a peace that doesn't leave us because the circumstances change. The problem is we seek peace in outward circumstances, and we lose it when they change. Lose all sense of assurance, all sense that we are loved by God if the circumstances change. But the peace that we're being called to have here has nothing to do with the outward circumstances of our lives. It is an inward peace, a peace that is so great that it is possible to be at peace even when everything in your life suggests 
that you should be restless. In fact, a peace, an inner peace in the midst of so much outer restlessness, I mean, isn't that what we truly desire when we think of what peace with God must be like? Don't we want to possess something like that where we're not blown back and forth by circumstance, where our sense of wholeness does not depend on on bank balances? number of followers, how good our relationships are. We have that wholeness because we know that we are at peace with God. Justification is not an abstraction. Justification is a thing that God does in our life that leads to peace with him. It is a real change that leads to real peace. A peace that should transform our restlessness, not necessarily into placidness, but it changes our restlessness into longing. Longing. I'm not saying that that when we have faith, all of our needs are met and our hearts uh, are, are, are satisfied. What I'm saying is the restlessness transforms into longing longing for what has been promised, longing for what is to come, and a peace that rests in the hope of glory. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.